just so many things about uh, what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi as I was in uh, time of devotions this morning and uh, the way that our mind uh, will start with something that's even godly you know you thinking about something that uh, you know from the very passage you're trying to read and you're trying to pray and meditate upon that oh, thank you brother um you know your mind like grabs a hold of something like i say that maybe is even godly and then before you know it it's created something else from that and you know you find yourself you know just a long ways away from wherever you had intended to be and where you were moments ago in uh, your time with the lord and praying about that this morning i recognize that uh, in my own life uh, you know, when I started being serious about time in the Word and devotions like that, uh, the drift was so far that I would literally physically find myself like miles away. Like I had allowed that distraction to, you know, make me get up out of my chair and I, I had gone to do a thing and that thing had reminded me of something else and you know, the rabbit trail ends up being, I'm at the hardware store, uh, you know, miles away from my Bible, which is still lying open where I was with the Lord. And uh, I was encouraged in that, that, you know, more and more as I spend time with the Lord over these years, that those, while I'm still sort of bugged by them, the distraction and the drift and the distance is so much smaller minutes you know and uh you know they aren't miles i don't drive away you know there's just there's a progress that the lord has created and uh, i was thinking about uh what john is saying about the love of the world and and how you know that the love of the world is you know to be an enemy of god and how that's what i was dealing with when i first came and, you know, to the Lord and began to submit was <clears throat> that my love of the world was so much stronger that the drift uh, from fellowship with him was that much more remarkable and that much more, uh, you know, notable. Uh, today, uh, I'm not trying to imply that I'm super spiritual at all. I'm, I'm just saying I'm blessed at what the Lord has done, the change that he has effected uh, the work that he is continuing uh, to do. And and Paul is on that subject uh, as he's talking about how, you know, we uh, are you know, to be uh, living this way, uh, whether, you know, someone, you know, like our pastor or, uh, you know, youth pastor or, you know, someone that maybe we're trying to impress spiritually, whether they're watching us or not he's, he's talking to the church at philippi and saying whether i'm there or not i want you to continue in this walk and uh, and in this conduct he shifts a little bit in verse 19 by saying but i trust in the lord to send timothy to you shortly now 
it might sound overly spiritual, but uh, James warns us uh, to not say, uh, you know, we're going to travel into uh, this country, into this city, and we're going to live there for a year. We're going to buy and sell and trade, make all this money. And, you know, those plans often disintegrate right in front of us. And he says much better to say, if the Lord wills, then we will do this or that. You know, sure. You can even fill in the blanks and ad lib and say, you know, we're intending to go to this city or that city. But in the end, it's if the Lord wills. You know, that submission. I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Not sure it's going to happen. Really want to make it happen. Trying to develop all the circumstances that would allow for it to happen. But in the end, he's submitting to the fact that it's the Lord. And in that process, right, uh, for those of us especially that are, uh, you know, on here on Sunday nights and we're looking at the contrast of 1 Corinthians as Paul is addressing that church, he's said similar things to them about how he intends to go to them and minister to them, but he's been unable to. And, you know, he's been inhibited by uh, the Jews and by the Roman government. And so, you know, that church has got a lot of mockery in their tone about, oh, well, Paul says he's coming here. You know, he talks big. You know, he acts, but the guy never shows up. And and have you ever seen him? You know, maybe you've read his letters, but have you ever seen the guy? Is, you know, what I'm paraphrasing. You know, he's a short little Jewish dude with a high-pitched squeaky voice who's all scarred up and got, you know, knobbed knees. Is, is literally how history records him. And, and they had a mockery uh, in their tone about Paul. Here, in contrast, this church that loves Paul accepts the fact that he's saying, you know, we're going to do our best to make sure Timothy gets there and ministers to you. That I also, continuing in verse 19, may be encouraged when I know your state. When word is sent back to me, when Timothy gets to you and is able to write a letter or send someone back to me, I'm really anxious to know how you are doing. I uh, um, have several friends that will periodically uh, just shoot me an email or a text and say, hey, what is going on? You know, what's 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 going on in your life? I've You've been on my mind the past few days and I really want to just check in and make sure you're doing okay. Having those types of relationships where someone is genuinely concerned about you in the faith is, is really precious. You know, just sort of plugging away on your own and uh, not having anyone who checks in on you and, uh, you know, touches base with you to know uh, what's going on. And if you're thinking, well, that's me, you know, I'm the lone wolf out here and no one really cares about me anyway. So, well, what's the scripture tell us? The man who desires friends must himself be friendly. Right? You've, you've got to reach out to other people too. You, you've got to work on your end and, and develop those relationships so that you have this sort of symbiotic relationship with other people, the fellowship of Christianity. 
uh, for I, verse 20, have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state other than Timothy. You know, he's pointing to the fact that Timothy is his son in the faith. He even makes mention of that in the next verse. <clears throat> but the idea that this young man uh, is attached to me spiritually and emotionally and even physically in such a way that his coming to you is as close as I can possibly give to myself coming there. He's like-minded. He's attached. He's on the same page and, and will assess your situation in a similar enough way as I would that, uh, like I say, it's as though I'm there caring for you. And then he continues, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Uh, by the end of Paul's life, sadly, he's recording that there's only a couple of people that have stayed with him and continued to minister not only with him, but to him. Everyone else has abandoned him. Even people that we've read about who have turned because of their love for the world, which you know, if you boil that down a little further, you get to love of self. You know, so they've loved themselves to the point where they've allowed themselves the excuse to abandon Paul. What a heartbreaking thought. I mean, think about, I don't know about you, but think about how much you love Paul's letters because they are so critical to the church. You know, what Paul recorded, what Paul left for us is something that's essential to, to knowing Christian doctrine, doctrine and, and understanding our walk and our relationship with the Lord. So incredibly valuable to us. A man that has such incredible worth in the kingdom, imprisoned for that ministry to the church, to the body of Christ, finds himself in a place where everyone else who had previously dedicated themselves to him and his work has left him in prison and left him alone and abandoned. So having someone like Timothy is always sincerely valuable, not only uh, to the individual such as Paul, but also to everyone that they effectively minister to. Uh, I, I always think of uh, E.L. Romaine, who was Chuck Smith's assistant pastor. You know, by and large, you know, everything we know and have experienced of Calvary Chapel, the teachings and all of the ministries we're able to use and the resources that were produced from that, you know, we sort of look at Chuck Smith as the source of those things. Yeah, he is. But the Lord coupled him together with Romaine, and Chuck would say, uh, you know, without a man like Romaine in his life, many of those things wouldn't have been accomplished. And Romaine was there making sure that the gears turned. So that Paul's ministry, or Paul, so that Chuck's ministry was effective and being accomplished. You know, Timothy is uh, serving in that same manner. Verse twenty-two. But you know his proven character, right? You know Timothy. He's saying to the church at Philippi, "You're familiar with this young man and the way he behaves himself and conducts himself in the church." 
there's another element to that, as Paul has told church leadership, both in Titus and in the books to Timothy, that those who serve within the body of Christ must first prove themselves. Before they're going to be given a position, before uh, Paul or Timothy or any of those church leaders would say, oh, well, let's make you a deacon in this congregation. Let's make you an elder in this congregation. Let's make you the pastor in charge of this congregation. They would first need to work for an extended period of time doing those things without faltering before they would say, okay, clearly you are. You know, you, you don't have some strange motivation or or if you did have some strange motivation as far as getting into the ministry that sort of got worked out of you and you've stuck it out and here you are showing that uh you know like in chapter two uh or, you know early on when he's saying let this mind be in you which was also in christ jesus that jesus emptied himself of all of his glory in order to become a humble servant you know you can see within Timothy that whatever needed to be worked and refined in his life has, and this man is dedicated to the cause and dedicated to his proven character. He's not a flash in the pan. He's not one who, you know, was slick and smooth and a great communicator. And so somebody said, hey, let's put this guy in charge. He's endured the hardships. He's gone through the toil. He's remained steadfast. And, and the things that he's taught and the things that he's ministered are accurate and uh, proven. That as, in regard to that proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. And there's that relationship I spoke about. You know, by no means uh, should we disobey what Jesus is saying and start referring to our spiritual leaders as, you know, Father, you know, Father Paul, Father Will, Father whoever. Jesus is saying you're all brethren. And Paul later refers to uh, Timothy as my son in the faith. But at no point is he, he you know, stopping people mid-sentence and saying, hey, 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 make sure you refer to me as Father Paul. You know, make sure you refer to me as Reverend Will. You know, I mean, you want to you know, call somebody that Pastor Will, Pastor Chuck, you know, whatever. It, when someone has the mindset like, I must be referred to because of my religious position by this given title. There's something dramatically wrong with that. You're missing the point of servitude. It's the, it's the same sort of thing the world does, you know, when, when an arrogant senator will stop a respectful individual and say, don't refer to me as ma'am, refer to me as senator so-and-so, you know. It's ridiculous, you know, got to crush somebody with your title and your position. How completely backwards in the body of Christ. This relationship here goes back to what I've dwelt on here just moments ago, the like-mindedness in verse 20. You know, we're, we're you know, of one family, and we have the same thought process. Uh, you know, keeping in mind what Paul says in like 
1 Corinthians there, chapter 14, as he's so thoroughly rebuked the church at Corinth and then concludes by saying, so if any of those guys there who claim to be prophets read this, make sure that they agree with me. Because if they don't, <laughs> then they're not prophets, is what he's saying. We're, we are of one body. And when Paul sends them a letter of corrective doctrine, he's saying they better agree with it. Because this is a truth within our family. You can't deny the doctrine that I'm sending to you. So it is with uh, Timothy here. You know, He's saying he's, he's my son in the faith because... We're of one mind. We, we function as a family, as, as a, you know, a godly family. Who you know, The father has his statement and his mandate and, and follows after that. Now, that, that idea of all seeking their own, that's in contrast to uh, the conduct of father and son. Therefore, verse 23, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. Don't know how this whole court case is going to turn out uh, with the Jews and my appealing to Caesar. We'll see how that thing goes, and then I might be able to uh, come to you. But I trust in the Lord, there it is again, that I myself shall also come shortly. Yeah. Can't make the bold claim that I know with distinction that this is definitely going uh, to happen. And I, I'm always entertained by you know, the false teachers on television and the internet who are demanding that the devil submit to them and demanding that COVID-19 depart from our country and demanding certain things as though they have absolute authority over all things. You know, here's Paul, author of more than one third of the New Testament, saying, well, you know, God willing, we, we might say today, that this is what the plans are and if the Lord works it out, that's what I intend to do. It's, it's really devastating to our faith to have the arrogance to make claims that are rooted in our own assumptions, have them fall apart in front of us, and then blame it on God. You know, God told me this is going to happen. And, uh, you know, when it doesn't happen, how shattered the individual is over the fact that they had believed so wholeheartedly. They have to change their entire doctrine when they make such claim, false claims. Now, he says in verse 25, Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, for, uh, excuse me, but your messenger, the one who ministered to my needs. Epaphroditus was uh, sent uh, by the church at Philippi to minister to Paul. That's sort of the backstory here. Uh, you know, I'm wanting to send him back to you even before Timothy, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And here's why? For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now we've got Epaphroditus here who is being sent back because the church of Philippi sent 
this person to minister to Paul. And apparently, either during the journey or immediately upon arrival, uh, was thick, sick or fell sick to the literally to the point of death. And what um, Paul is saying is, you know, I, I don't, ima- I can't imagine uh, how I would have felt if uh, somehow in the process, um, you know, someone sent to minister to me ended up dying. Well, what would that have been like for Paul? Uh, to realize that, uh, you know, the church at Philippi has sent Epaphroditus uh, to Paul, and basically, because of, of going to Paul, now he's dead. <laughs> Paul's got enough trouble uh, that he doesn't want to think about what it would have been like to have somebody die in in trying to just get to him and take care of his basic needs. Uh, that that's a That's a very serious individual that would commit themselves this way to making sure Paul is taken care of. The, the uh, church of Philippi was, was very serious about Paul, and uh, he's going to reference the gifts and the work that they've done for him, and Epaphroditus is of that mindset. Therefore, I send him the most uh, more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice, I may be that I, and I may be less sorrowful. You know, the... Uh, the selflessness seen in Epaphroditus in that, you know, his concern in being sick was less to do with his own health than it was the church at Philippi is going to be broken hearted over the fact that I'm sick or if he passes away, they're going to be broken hearted over the fact that I'm dead. The selflessness that's involved in that. You know, I mean, it, it's really, it isn't bravado. It's not pride, okay? Uh, Epaphroditus is in the place that Christ is at as far as being so mindful of others that his chief concern is, you know, if I've got to die out here, I hope that I'm able to die without Philippi knowing it. His, his chief concern was that they might become aware of it or, or that they had become aware of it and that somehow was going to be a burden to them. Think of, think of that, you guys, how much in contrast that is to our character and what we see in the church today. And, and listen, I'm not, I'm not taking this opportunity to just one more time uh, you know, point out the flaws of the church and mock it and, and uh, you know, put a big neon sign over the flaw and say, everybody look at this. I'm saying we need to examine ourselves and look at what is going on here. You know, what, what is it that, that is the problem within us and within the church today? This is an example Paul is saying, try to be like that guy whose chief concern was not, wow, I might die out here, right? From a fleshly point of view, Epaphroditus could be, could have the attitude like, well, this is just great. You know, I'm out here trying to be a selfless servant, and, you know, I've come and served this Paul who's in prison. I mean, what kind of a Christian actually ends up in prison anyway? You know? 
I mean, maybe maybe there's something that you know God is doing behind the scenes after all to punish Paul. Because if he was a real Christian, then you know he wouldn't be in trouble like this. You know, he would have been healthy and wealthy and prosperous and free. But now this guy's in prison, and you know the church of Philippi puts a bunch of money in my pocket and says, "You got to go give all of this, you know, goods and wares and." protection and health and provision to Paul and now I've traveled and now I'm dying you know no thanks for me instead of having that junky worldly attitude that we so often easily fall to his attitude is boy I hope Philippi doesn't find out I'm in the process of dying and then when he hears that they have found out he's broken hearted over man I wish I could have just died out here without them being aware of it I want them to be able to continue. You know, I don't want them to have it in their mind that every time they send out a missionary, an evangelist, those people end up dying and getting killed. You know, maybe they'll actually come to the place where they no longer send people out. They'll be so scared of it. His mindset is completely empty of selfless or selfishness. He does. He has. He has nothing in his conduct, and this is what Paul is saying about these are the men you want to pay attention to right here. These are the men who, who go out, and on the grand scale of things, right? Epaphroditus doesn't show up. They, the church at Philippi doesn't go. Okay, now look, we're doing really good here. We're doing wonderful. We got enough money that we can actually send Paul something. So you know what we ought to do is like, what is what is the biggest demographic around here? Like, we're doing a good job at Philippi, but maybe we could start, let's start a satellite church over in that town, over there. You know, and we'll build that up really big, and that'll become famous and popular. And, you know, then everybody will look at the fact that, uh, you know, not only did we have our big epicenter over here in Philippi, but then we also had that other big campus. Instead, you got one guy in prison who they love dearly, and they're willing to invest themselves and send a faithful minister out to go. I, I've said many times, I honestly do not care to read the books written by men who have mega churches. I, I want to hear from men like Frank Drowns, who you know trained Jim Elliott to go into the mission field who Jim Elliott knew was so dedicated to what they were doing there to minister to the natives that the day Jim Elliott lost his life, went out into the jungle to minister to the natives, that they didn't tell Frank because they knew Frank would not let them go without him. And they knew that their chances of dying were extremely high. Frank had to go get the local government and fly out there and find his friends in the river and pull their bodies out and bring them back to their wives and then take them home and bury them. And when he was finished with that, he went right back to the mission field. Well, remember when we saw Frank speak? Was he 89? Do you remember that? Was he, in, he, was, he was with us in Maryland. Then he was again with us in New York at the pastor's conference in the fall. Jim Elliott was at the 70s when he died in the jungle. 
And here we are in the millennium in 2000, and Frank is headed off in the same way to go minister to another tribe, an isolated tribe of Inuits inside the Arctic Circle. Mostly unknown by the body of Christ. Just training and teaching and ministering and selflessly giving too. That's the sort of guy you want to uh, talk to about how has the Lord affected you? What's the Lord done in your heart and in your mind and in your life and in your conduct? It has no motivation that's based in self. It's all about what Christ has told him to do and how to go minister. You know, Epaphrodite wishes that they didn't know he's in the process of dying. He's healed and been sent back. Therefore, I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice. And I be, may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with gladness. And here it is. And hold such men in esteem. This is the quality of individual you want to look for. Is, is the person who's, I mean, what's his task? He's a money carrier. You know what I'm saying? Like, give this guy the envelope and send him to Paul. And he almost dies in the process. And his only concern is, don't tell the church that sent me. <laughs> Let me just disappear in death and obscurity as long as that church continues to function and Paul is able to do his ministry. And Paul points right at Epaphroditus and says, now that's a guy you need to pay attention to right there. Somebody who's willing to sacrifice everything without recognition for the purpose of Christ. The church has got it so dead wrong today. Just wants everybody to, you know, any time. I, I had a, a young man call me up. He was working in a ministry and he left that ministry because they're doing a promotion of the ministry, which, you know, it's great. Get the word out, right? Jesus sends out 72 ahead of himself, and then he follows in behind, and everybody's hearts are prepared. I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting the word out, but this young man is serving in a relatively uh, big ministry, and they're promoting themselves, and he watched for days as they had camera crews there filming, and they're staging ministry. They got the workers like, go over and talk to this young person like this. Like, show me more emotion. Like Hollywood production. He was already bugged by a whole bunch of stuff that he saw that was going on in that ministry. And when he saw that, he packed his junk and he left. The insincerity. You know, see somebody praying for somebody and the camera guy misses it. And so the, the director goes over and says, uh, you know, get that kid back here and like reenact that again. This time, do it this way. Put on a show. I mean, okay, you're ministering. Okay, the camera crew's there. Okay, they're filming. But now we're going to act out the whole process. There's a problem in the church of self-promotion. There's a problem in the church uh, that's, you know, completely self-seeking. If, if Christ wants the world to know you prayed with some kid, guess what? The Lord's going to let the world know that. If Christ wants people to know that you're doing a particular thing with drug addicts or, you know, those that are suicidal or 
you know, whatever area of suffering sin creates in this world, uh, Christ will make people aware of that. The guy who's selflessly serving, Paul says, you know, hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. You know, that, that service that he's talking about, he, he clarifies saying that there wasn't, you know, anything in it that was lacking in regard to their desire. It was just they couldn't get there. And Epaphroditus did. Now, he says here in verse uh, 3, now, I'm going to come back up here. Uh, but, uh, yeah, chapter uh, 3, rather. Uh, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, for me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Listen. Again, we find the doctrine everywhere, right? The world criticized, uh, criticized Isaiah. The Jewish people criticized Isaiah because... And their complaint was he, he teaches in such a simplistic way. It's line upon line, verse upon verse, here a little, there a little. You can't get away from it. Every little thing he's putting biblical application to it, you know. When you're out in the marketplace, he's pointing out, uh, you know, all these ways that what you're doing, uh, you know, the word of God applies to it. You know, here a little, there a little. It's just constant with this guy. Paul is saying, Right here, it's it's not troublesome, it's not tedious, it's not aggravating to write to you the same thing over and over again. Is that not how we learn? There are few of us in the whole of the human race that learn from a single explanation. You know, most of us uh, here, uh, according to the studies, less than one quarter of the information on the first pass. Less than one quarter. You're somewhere below 25% of what you need to take in when the first pass is made. You know, that, that, that pretty much means, and it's interesting, because we don't get 50% on the second pass. They, they, they do the studies that very often... They're at the 10th time through, and you're getting somewhere around 70% at that point. 70% of all the information. They don't some complex thing that they're trying to relay to you. First time through, 25%. Right? It only goes up to like 35% on the second pass. <laughs> You'd hope it'd move right up to like, I got a quarter on the first one. And then, you know, second time through, you got like 50%, not at all. It takes that constant repetition, you know, years of, of rehearsing and reciting and repeating in order to get to where you've got a proficiency. It's not tedious, Paul is saying, for me to write the same things to you. In fact, he's saying, for you, it's it's safety. That's, that's how I'm protecting you. You. Now think about that, right? The church doesn't ever want to hear the same message repeated, right? Uh, I, I've criticized it before, but I'll bring it up again. 
I was astonished to be in a church years ago where they've got fixed into their budget that they completely revamp their entryway. They do the entire decor of their entryway uh, over in their church every quarter. It's built in f into their budget. I'm talking like, not, not everything. They don't rip down the walls. The decor, so that when you walk in, once a quarter, it feels brand new. If, if, if that's your approach, right, then every message needs to feel that way. You're, you're constantly searching for and grasping for. that. You know what that'll do is that'll cause you to do things with the word of God that are unnatural. That, that you're twisting and contorting uh, for the sake of the crowd to a point where you're going to create something that isn't biblical by the time you're done. Paul's saying, I, you know, I got no problem with this. This isn't tedious to me to give you the same message again. For your sake, I'm producing something that's very safe. Uh, isn't, isn't that what our whole message is about? Th think about that, guys. Isn't that what our whole gospel is about? It's about salvation, right? Safety. Deliverance. This is what our message should be. Uh, the world acts like that. They always act like that, right? Uh, they've been saying this stuff since the beginning. Jesus is coming back. Right, right. We've heard that one before. They're always dismissive of it. Then he says, and he gets to the explanation of what he's talking about, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Now, certainly, you know, any of us that have studied um, these passages and the teachings of Paul uh, the New Testament, the issue between the Jews, the Gentiles, all of that, the mutilation, talking about uh, the uh, people that came from the Jewish religion into Christianity who are trying uh, to make Christians go through the process of being circumcised. And he talks about, you know, in the next verses, how, you know, we are the circumcision. Uh, the dogs, the evil workers, and the mutilation, they, they are the same thing. Uh, yes, we can, you know, strain them down into each of their own individual categories, but it's what? It's that which would destroy your faith in the Lord, the worship of Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. The dogs, well, there are many descriptions of the dogs throughout the Scripture. There are those that return to their vomit, right? There are those that would attack you like a dog. Uh, there are those that the scripture calls Gentiles, which we would more accurately refer to as unbelievers, you know, those who aren't even of the faith. So, okay, you got dogs, and they're in the church, right? We could then draw an easy parallel over to all the things we think of about wolves, those who attack the flock, those that prey upon the flock, the warnings that come from Peter and Paul and most of the epistles about the wolves and those who would ravage the body of Christ. You have a lot of definition there. Beware of evil workers. 
Think about all of the different ways those affected Paul in his ministry. I, I, I find it interesting the way that, you know, our culture, postmodernism, the world of toleration around us, what we're now calling the cancel culture, is, is behaving. And, you know, they say things like, oh, don't, you know, use somebody's name. Don't speak against them. Don't criticize a particular ministry. Don't call out, you know, a false teacher. And yet Paul does all through his writings openly speaks of certain false teachers, individual, even to the point where by the time he's, you know, passing away, he said, you know, God will repay at Alexander, that coppersmith, that guy's going to get what's coming to him. You know, this whole thing that our culture has of hand-wringing nervousness and politeness and toleration, it isn't found in the Scripture. It's not found in the Word of God. It's not found in Christianity. The truth is spoken. And if an individual falls inside that, then they are spoken of like Epaphroditus is right here. Admire that guy. But those who turn away and go after the things of the world, Paul mentions Demetrius by name, warns the church, to not be like him. It's important that we understand the examples that are right around us to be able to point at an individual and say, see that guy and his conduct? Act like him. Remember this guy and what he did in our company here in this church, Calvary Chapel down east? Don't try to be like that guy. Paul points them out and tells us who we should be aware of. Beware of the dogs, generally speaking. The evil workers. Those inside and outside the church who have a deteriorating spiritual effect upon the church. And the mutilation. Today, uh, we could point at those who are hyper-legalistic within the church. We don't, we don't want to turn ourselves into them. Often, it's weird. Often, they're admired. Right? Oh, they're so disciplined. Oh, they're quick to point out other people's flaws. Oh, they just have a magnifying glass all the time. They're hyper-legalistic. The mutilation was that way. Oh, the law says you must be circumcised. How can you declare yourself a believer? And yet, you're not. They got all these rules, all these regulations. Uh, yeah, Paul's going to turn right around here. And say, right, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Okay, there is a twofold thing when Jesus says you must worship in spirit and in truth, right? It is the sense of the Holy Spirit, but it's also the idea that uh, we understand from our own language and our own culture, right? If I said to you, I've brought you this gift and I've come here to do all of this work for you in the spirit of love. Right? You go, okay, that makes sense. Right? If I bang and thrash on your door in an angry, violent way until you're agitated and come running and rip the door open and I smash you in the face with my fist and I say, I just came over here to do that to you in the spirit of love. 
All of you, whether you recognize it, all of you just smirked. <laughs> I get to see that from up here. Because right? it doesn't match. The Holy Spirit, right? The, right? We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Right. The Holy Spirit. But there's the Spirit of God that is not, right, the dogs, the evil workers, or the mutilation. Church would be wise to understand that today. As we can look around and see the way certain people promote themselves profoundly as being Christians and then their conduct very contrary to it. Right within this passage, certainly doesn't line up with Epaphroditus or Timothy or Paul. It's not, it's not the spirit of Christ. It's not the spirit of God that we see. Continuing in verse 3, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh. Oh, somebody's saying they're, you know, deeply religious and that they somehow excel beyond me. Yeah, I could talk like that, Paul is saying. I, I've got college certificates, he's saying. I've got credentials. Yeah. Somebody wants to talk like that. Those of the mutilation want to come to you. Right? I'll never forget. I had just started ministering here. And we had some guests come. And the family, apparently the Holy Spirit really spoke to them. They'd not experienced, you know, verse by verse teaching and, you know, this sort of casual style and, they were very blessed by the message, apparently, and a couple of them came up uh, to me afterwards and were like, "Wow, I just—we never experienced anything like that. We didn't—we didn't know. We've been in church for years. We didn't know any of those things about that passage, and just that was some cool stuff. Really, really blessed by that." And the father sort of saunters up afterwards and says, "That uh, was interesting. Where'd you go to Bible college?" He says. And I say, well, I have studied under the Bible college teachings of Calvary Chapel, but I've never been to Bible college. So you haven't been to seminary? And I said, oh, absolutely not. And he was like, ah, oh, yeah. And he just walks off, gathers his family right up, and you can just see he's literally tearing it apart. And they usher them all out the door as quick as possible. Doesn't have the credentials. You know, and that's not just in my paranoid mind. There are so many people that have that attitude that it doesn't meet our approval. It doesn't fall under our mandates. I don't have any, Paul said, I, you know, I have no confidence in the, just because there's a large group of people that approve of someone else. You know, they've been to college, received their certificate, uh, you know, had a large congregation, been elevated in the community. You know, everybody says, wow, they put them on every single television show 
whenever there's a question, right? The community's now dealing with a question of the faith. Well, we better get this guy in. He's got credentials, and we put him. I'm describing our own community here, and everybody's astonished when he just jumps off the bridge because he's been found to be a child molester. The, the credentials that people put their trust in. Paul's saying, yeah, I got credentials. That's not what we're looking at. Just because a large group of people has approved of a certain individual and even stamped a piece of paper and said, go hang that on your wall, that doesn't have anything to do with Christ's approval. It has zero to do with it. The integrity and the ministry that Christ creates in a person's heart and their life is an entirely different thing than man's approval. Right? Look, that's shocking to you. You can see it on your faces. But how about this, you guys? These mutilators who come to torture the church are the men that killed our Savior. Oh, everybody approves of them, right? You go in their office, they've got a big shiny plaque on the wall, and everybody's like, oh, those are the guys. Yeah, they're the guys who Jesus said, you are sons of the devil. And you're murderers. Just like your father, the devil. <laughs> That's wild that he gets right in their face that way. No wonder the church is in the condition that it is today because it just looks at the credentials of man. Oh, have you been to seminary? No. Well, then I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to listen to any of this. Rejecting God. Uh, you know, not, not, no reflection upon myself. I'm just saying here, uh, the work of Paul Proven through time, right? The church, Christianity gathers around the teachings of Paul to this day. Every single branch and every single denomination of Christianity gathers around the teachings of Paul. A man who by and large was rejected by the religious establishment of the day. Just like Jesus was rejected. You know, I have no confidence of flesh. Uh, I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, right? Whether he was a member of the Supreme Court or not, he, he was in a position amongst the Pharisees to where his credentials would have allowed him to be. And the fact that he passed judgment upon Stephen and gave approval to Stephen's stoning was a sign that he, he at least bore the authority that he could pass judgment of life and death in public that way. Had certificates of authority to go to Damascus and put more people in prison and have them put to death. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteous righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Right? No one contradicted that. And he was on trial 
by the men who were capable of saying whether Paul had failed according to the Jewish law or not. And they imply that's the accusation, but when they get into court, they never say it outright, he's failed at keeping the law. Uh, they imply that it's necessary that he be examined in that light, but when they get into the courtrooms for the examination, they've got no grounds to say those things. The authorities within their own country and the authorities within the Roman government say this, this has nothing to do with having broken the law. Paul was blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. All the things I pursued and built myself up in, now that I look at them properly, they're a pile of garbage, is what he says. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and here he says it, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Take all of my credentials and just run them through the garbage disposal. They're useless in comparison to the knowledge of Christ. And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, right? Because Isaiah the prophet said all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's disgusting. I don't want anything to do with it, which is from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. No observation of the law, no keeping of the ceremonies, no keeping of the Sabbaths, no following after all these mandates. What, where I found my righteousness is in trusting that Jesus Christ's righteousness covers all of my sins. Now Paul, now Paul doesn't put a laziness to that, right? We're not, we don't have time, but he immediately, you can read ahead for extra credit, he immediately launches into the responsibility of the believer to live this out. Right? We launched into this from the position where he said, now you have to have the outward working of your faith with fear and trembling. There has to be a sincerity in our walk. When there is not, it leads to the hypocrisy which destroys a person's faith. You know, this righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. A few things to look at as we close out for this evening's study. He works within his faith as though he has not obtained that resurrection from the dead yet. Now listen, he's already obtained it. Not through his works, right? He's, he's retained it and obtained it by the work, and I want to be clear, I didn't just mistakenly say that, he's, he's retained it and obtained it through the work of Jesus Christ. The work he's talking about doing is about the resulting behavior. 
because of receiving the salvation that Jesus Christ has given. It's lit him right on fire. He can't but do these things. He must live these things out. The sincerity of his faith compels him into this. And what are those two things that he points out here? The fellowship of his suffering and the conformity to his death. Hear me, church, in this closing remark. The, the things can be boiled right down to the fellowship of his suffering and the conformity of his death. Right? Now, one more time, it's as though it's seen through a mirror, right? Because Jesus Christ's conformity in suffering to the point of death was his heavenly Father is asking Jesus to embrace sin at the cross. Flip that over for us. We're, we are being asked to reject sin. And that's our cross. Now we see things dimly as though through a mirror. Ours is backwards to what Christ had to do. Christ had to embrace sin and go to the cross. I have to go to the cross and reject sin. That's our suffering. That's the fellowship of the suffering. Now, it will result in the same type of rejection by our community and by the people around us and the world at large, the same way that Christ did. Because it results in the same righteousness in our lives. You say, righteousness is imparted to us. Not if you embrace sin, it's not. <laughs> if, if you dive headfirst into your sin, then you have fellowship with the world. When I embrace the cross and I die to myself and my behavior results in things like the behavior of Epaphroditus and Timothy and Paul, then the world despises me. And then I find myself not only in the fellowship of his suffering in regard to the pain of rejecting the sin that I I want in my flesh, there's that suffering, but then I also get to find myself in the fellowship of the persecution that Jesus found himself in as the world hates us. Listen, that'll also be the dogs, the evil workers, and the mutilation who find themselves in and around the church. They'll hate you also. They'll hate you also. When the world hates you, because, not because of your arrogance, not because of your self-righteousness, because you walk in a humble integrity. When the world hates you for that, you're in good company. You're walking in the, in the right lane at that point, right? The, the, the narrow path that few find. Broad is the road to destruction. Very easy to get on. <laughs> there's a heavy toll booth at the end the price is hell we have to avoid the appetites of our flesh embrace the fellowship of his suffering so we'll stop right there at verse 11 uh, for the, this evening let's uh, pray and then we'll fellowship uh, for a while Father I thank you but you love us so much.
We absolutely don't deserve it. Lord, I pray for a deeper and deeper sincerity in my own life, a deeper and more sincere walk for every believer that's here, for this fellowship, for the body of Christ at large. As we see our culture tearing itself down, burning our very cities and our infrastructure to the ground and destroying all that you've blessed us with, all that you've delivered us from. Our culture has just gone mad, literally. There's no hope. No hope within the culture. No no hope within the government. No hope within the plans of man. The rich history of this nation and the churches that stand the ancient structures have those steeples all over, especially New England. And those steeples point straight at the answer. Pointing at your throne, drawing people's attention. They were built with those bells that they housed so that those steeples would resonate those uh, sounds throughout their community to draw people to worship. And they've fallen silent and fallen into decay and been donated off and given away to some of the most despicable entities in each of those communities imaginable. Lord, we need revival. We, in this room, need our hearts ignited by your flame. We need the outpouring of your spirit upon those who claim to be believers. We need our communities of unbelievers awakened. We're here tonight in this little church with our hearts surrendered to you, asking that you would be merciful, forgiving, restorative, that you would save us and save our nation. Deliver us from ourselves. Deliver us from our sin, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.